realize that I have been going too fast and we're going to start over. <laughs> no. Uh, this is actually a very good place in the book of Acts to pause and take stock of where we have been. So just as uh, somewhat of an overarching uh, theme verse that we talked about when we did begin this study, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus speaking to his disciples before his ascension. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Let us pray. Father, indeed, this is the true mandate of the church. To be the witnesses of Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we pray that as we study this record of the early church written by your servant Luke, that we would understand what it means to be a witness for Jesus Christ. What it means to live in this world, in this time that you have chosen for us as individuals and as a body. We pray, Father, that you would grant us that pure and peaceable wisdom that only comes from you, the Father of lights. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We talked uh, quite a bit as we've been studying the book of Acts. We talked about this concept of the New Testament church. Something that uh, in my life as a believer was very popular back in the 70s and 80s. This concept of reconstituting the worship of the church in a New Testament model. But it's a very nebulous Concept subject to various interpretations in the last 40 years has basically proven that as various different uh, non-denominational and uh, congregational churches have claimed to be a New Testament church. Well, certainly if we're going to study a New Testament church, then the book of Acts is where we would begin. There is general agreement, however, at least among biblical scholars, that the book of Acts is not regulative but indicative. In other words, it tells us what to do, but not how to do it. It gives us a general framework of what it means to be the congregation of faith, what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't tell us specifically how we're to deal with day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year, generation-to-generation situations that the church faces in this world. It doesn't tell us how to vote, for example. It doesn't tell us whether to vote. It doesn't tell us where to work, where to go to school, how to educate our children. There, there are myriads of things that the church deals with and individual believers deal with that the book of Acts does not touch upon. But the book of Acts does give us the church at its beginning of its current framework, of its current manifestation, and that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the building of the spiritual temple of God. And it gives us the church in perspective. The book of Acts, you'll often hear it said that Christianity is about relationships. And that's a dangerous thing to say because it often gets really touchy-feely and psychological and, and not biblical at all. But there are indeed three relationships in which the church is placed in the book of Acts that are very important to our understanding of who we are 
as, a, as the people of God in this age. The first is the church in relationship to her master, to Jesus Christ. The church is the witness on, in the world of Jesus Christ. This is our vertical orientation, the church in relationship to her master. Then we have the church in relationship to herself, within the church. This is the horizontal inward relationship. And the third is the church in relationship to her world. And I say her world, not the world. Because each generation of the church is different from prior generations and lives in a different world. So the living church at any time, at any age, learns how to deal with her world. The world that God has providentially set her within. And therefore the book of Acts must contain timeless guidelines. There is a cultural context of the book of Acts, but its lessons, its principles must transcend context. Because we don't live in first, Second Temple Judea. We don't live under the domain of the Roman Empire. We live in the 21st century, in a republic, in a democracy, under elected government. A completely different worldview, paradigm, than the disciples faced when the church first began. So these three perspectives, the vertical, the horizontal inward, and the horizontal outward. Now these perspectives each represent error within the history of the church. Times when the vertical element became the dominant one. These were days of monasticism and cloisterism, when the church withdrew from the world, and even from one another, and claimed that its mandate was to worship God through Jesus Christ. Then there were the times and times now when the church grows inward, when the church becomes a gated community, and every emphasis of the church is on one another. Now again, we realize that the first emphasis is right. Our mandate is to worship God through Jesus Christ. Our mandate is also to live with one another, to love one another, forgive one another, admonish one another. But when that becomes the emphasis of the church, to the exclusion of the other two, then the church fails in its mandate before God. We've all read about, and we see in our day, the third relationship to the world. When the church becomes overtly outward, and everything is about social programs, and helping feeding the poor, and, and uh, banishing abortion, and, and the other issues that are in the world in which the church lives. Issues to which the world or the church should have a voice. But that should not be the only thing the church has to say. So these three relationships, vertical, horizontal, inward, horizontal, outward, cannot be exclusive, one to the exclusion of the other two. They're not necessarily in one-third balance. Okay, It would not be a third of our time is spent worshiping Jesus, a third of our time is spent doing one another's, and a third of our time is out to soup kitchens. It doesn't work that way. It's not that kind of a balance. But within the wisdom that God gives to His church, all three of these must be ever-present realities, ever-present emphases on the life of the church if it is to be not just a New Testament church, but a biblical church, the true church. So we look first at the church in relationship to her master, Jesus. This passage I just read is Jesus before his ascension telling the disciples 
what would happen to them, and as a result of that, what they would be. These were not two different events. One, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Two, you will be my witnesses. That's the mistake that the Pentecostal wing of the church has made. They have separated the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and have made it an individual manifestation of one's faith. When Jesus Christ did not separate the two. You will receive the Holy Spirit and therefore because of that, as a result of that, you will be my witnesses. First in Judea and then Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, so far, as we've gone through the first five chapters, they haven't left Jerusalem. Still Judea. They will still be in Jerusalem when we get to Acts 15. So it wasn't, you know, this weekend you're going to handle Judea or Jerusalem. Next weekend, Judea. Then you're, you know, following Sunday you'll be, it's not this itinerant ministry. There's a building from a center. That center is Zion. That center is Jerusalem because salvation is from the Jews. And the proclamation of salvation will come from Zion. And so we will spend a great deal of time and we will return in the ministry of Paul. We will return. Where? To Jerusalem. That's an important concept. Especially since most of us were raised in a, an era of the modern Western church in which dispensationalism has prevailed. And the view that the church is a plan B. That God's redemptive purposes were thwarted by the unbelief of Israel. And so as an alternative, having left Israel to itself, God has established a, a, a new way called the church. In order to deal with the Gentile world. Intending later at some point to return to Israel. That is false. And it is very, very dangerous. It cuts the church off from her heritage, places her adrift in the sea of the world without any navigation at all, because it divorces the church from her Jewish roots. And so we don't do that here, but, but we have to acknowledge that, that many of us grew up in that teaching. And we largely, our thinking about the church has been perhaps subconsciously Modified, molded by that teaching. And therefore we don't fully understand what it is the apostles and then later the teachers and elders of the church have been teaching. When they reference the Old Testament, for example. But the first element of the church's reason for being is in relationship to her master, Jesus Christ. The early apostles, especially Peter, in his preaching, had a very simple yet powerful Christology. Now you'll notice when you read through the book of Acts, there are no disputations regarding the reality of the Trinity. There, there are no words of uh, homo usias, uh, homo usian, no talking about equal persons into one Godhead, none of the theological Christology that developed in the church, very importantly, our understanding of what the Bible teaches, Developed as the church grew. But you don't find it here. You simply find a simple yet powerful Christology. In the beginning, chapter 2, verse 36, in Peter's first sermon, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord 
and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now it is remarkable to, remarkable to me that 20 centuries later, there are professing Christians who would have us believe that we can accept Jesus as our Savior, but need not accept Him as our Lord. That is a common and popular teaching in the church today, that we can separate these two offices of Christ, Christos and Kyrios, that He can be our Savior, He can atone for all our sins, but we need not obey Him as our King. Would Peter agree with such a concept? Let Israel know for certain that God has made him either Lord or Christ, whatever you prefer. No. He has made him Lord and Christ. So there's the timelessness of this simple Christology. Now we don't, what we who divorce our understanding of the church from the heritage of Judaism cannot appreciate what Peter is saying here. What he is saying here is that the messianic hope of the Davidic king and the salvific hope of the suffering servant, the house of David and the house of Levi have come together in this Jesus whom you crucified. Because the concept of Lord and the concept of Christ or Messiah were not necessarily joined in one person in the mind of the Jew. And we read the scriptures. There are this, the Isaiah, the servant psalms in Isaiah. There are the psalms that prophesy of the son of David. And we can see that, you know, they're not necessarily the same person. Now, frankly, when you get to Zechariah and you find the priest sitting on his throne... You know, they're, they're coming together, okay? But Peter is said, saying, okay, there were some hints, but now let Israel know for certain that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Christ, King and Savior. Not one or the other. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is exclusivity if ever there was. You know, we're told we're to be tolerant. We're told by our professing, believing politicians that there are many ways to, to God and that there are many acceptable religions to God. But Peter learned something in his being with Jesus. One particular phrase, perhaps, that Jesus said, recorded in the book of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so Jesus, and so Peter very quickly in his second sermon says, there is salvation in no one else. No Buddha, no Muhammad, no other of those many messiahs that you have already heard of, the Thutis, the Judas of Galilee, the many that will come later, the Bar Kokhba, the, the, the many messiahs that will arrive. Jesus already warned about them. You know, they will say to you, come there, the Christ is in the wilderness, or the Christ is in the inner room. And he said, don't, don't go out there. Don't go in there. I am the way. Simple Christology. Many concepts about Jesus Christ are difficult to understand. Many of them we accept because the Scripture says they are so. That He is fully God, 
and that He was truly man. We accept. Do we fully understand how those two came together? No, within the church there were various different theories trying to honor the truth of both and yet make it rational to our minds. Well, maybe because Peter was a simple fisherman, he simply accepted the truth. First, that God the Father had made Jesus both Lord and Christ, and therefore, consequently, there can be salvation in no one else. God has exalted Jesus. He is the one, we read in chapter 5, verse 31, He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior. Well, this is Lord and Christ. Just different words. To grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Well, there's the salvation in no one else. We've gone through five chapters. We've gone to two of Peter's sermons and several of his testimonies before the Sanhedrin. And the message is simple. It's pure. And it's powerful. It's Jesus. The church ever loses that message. The church has lost its life. It's evidence that the lampstand has already been removed. When anything takes the place of Jesus, the lampstand of that congregation, you can fairly say, is gone. God has removed it. By His grace, He may relight it again in another generation. But for this time and for this day, there is no light. There is no understanding. Because there is no Jesus. If we add anything to Jesus, the lampstand is gone. Jesus and works. Grace and works. Jesus and circumcision. Anything but Jesus and Him alone is a false gospel. It's a false church. It's very simple. Many other things we may believe and in many other things we may disagree. But upon one we must agree if we lay any claim to being in the church of Jesus Christ in this world. But the simplicity and the purity of this message invariably leads to persecution. It is a divisive message. What is Jesus? He's a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. Is he not? He is the scandal upon, upon which many will fall and be broken, and upon which many it will fall and they will be crushed. He, he's, he's not a popular person. He's not a as, as one of our previous presidents so famously said, he's not a bringer together. He's a divider of heart. He doesn't bring that kind of unity where everybody can come together. He actually brings division, as he said, with his own mouth, even within families. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. Because he is the scandalon, then... The proclamation of his name exclusively will bring persecution. Now, in our world today, you can talk about Jesus as long as you also talk about Muhammad. As long as you also give place for the rabbinic writings and the wisdom of Confucius. Throw in a little Marcus Aurelius and a little Buddha and everybody will love you. But when you say Jesus is the only name given under heaven, by which we must be saved. Your popularity is immediately gone. N.T. Wright wrote this about persecution. He, he's writing a book. Well, he's written it. I'm reading it. Um, about what, what, what is it that brought persecution? Why did the Jewish people 
react in, in the Mass so violently against what was the fulfillment of their own religion, Christianity. He says, what evokes persecution is precisely that which challenges a world view, that which upends a symbolic universe. You see, as human beings, we have a perception of the world in which we live, and we function by that perception. Sociologists and psychologists will agree with this. Once that perception has been challenged, there is going to be one of two reactions. There's either going to be a complete Copernican revolution whereby you alter your perception to the new worldview, or there is going to be violent <coughs> reaction against the new view. Because we can't entertain two worldviews in one brain. Okay? Now, that's one of the problems we have with the world in which we live. We think that all the world will share our worldview. No, that doesn't work. Within any generation on this planet, there are multiple worldviews. We were talking this morning in Sunday school about whether or not any society can survive plurality. Here's the problem. Plurality is not just people going to a different building on Sundays. Plurality is about worldviews trying to live next door to one another. That's not so simple. And it may not even be possible. But worldviews change. Throughout the world and from generation to generation, worldviews change. Jesus Christ challenges them all. All of them. All of them. Not just every other one, but ours. The American Evangelical Church has tried to unite its conservative political and economic worldview with Jesus Christ. It can't be done. That is nothing more than an attempt to avoid persecution by minimizing the impact, the radicality of the name Jesus Christ. There have been those who have tried to unite Jesus Christ with socialism, with communism. You can't do it. He opposes every worldview on the planet throughout the ages. Because every worldview is born out of the fall of man. Every concept that we develop as a society over time is, is nothing more than a propagation of original sin. The corruption of our mind. Now that doesn't mean that every element of every worldview is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Jesus challenges every worldview. And he will find something. In fact, he will find much in each worldview that is wrong. That must be conformed, that must be transformed to his way of thinking. That's our challenge as believers and as a church. is not to come and sit together and say amen to one another as we all proclaim the sanctity of the Second Amendment, or the sanctity of the First Amendment, or any other sanctity of some human law, of some human institution. That's not what we're about. What we're about is along with our Master Jesus, bringing everything into subjection to His will. Taking every thought captive, challenging every perspective by the light that is given us through Jesus Christ. And then, as we go out into the world, we do the same thing. 
We challenge worldviews. First, we challenge them to ourselves and amongst ourselves. And then the church challenges the world. But what we see is various branches of the professing church not challenging, but rather adopting one or this other of the worldviews around us and aligning itself so that it becomes known. Every one of you, when someone finds out that you profess to be a Christian, especially in South Carolina, immediately assume that you're a Republican. That's because that association has been made so powerfully that it is a given, even among Christians. It used to be that if you were a good Catholic, then you were a Democrat. I really, I grew up in a Catholic home. You know, and the pariah would have been a Republican Catholic. Well, now we have a Democratic Evangelical. Who would have it? You know, this is not right. This is where Jesus challenges us. This is not to say you can't be a Republican or you can't be a Democrat. It's to say you can't take any human paradigm and yoke it to the Lord Jesus Christ or yoke him to it. He won't have it. He challenges every worldview. And therefore, woe unto you when the world speaks well of you. Woe unto you when there is no persecution, when there is no opposition, when your belief can pass unmolested through the walk of life. What does that say? And I'm not saying that we need to go out and get burned at the stake. I'm not looking forward to that personally. I don't think any of us are. But do you suffer no opposition? Is your Christianity so like the world that the world can't tell the difference? Is your Jesus no challenge to their world? Your family, your relatives, your neighbors, your co-workers, whatever situation in life, even your children perhaps, Jesus challenges every worldview. Therefore, we are told that if we would live godly in Christ, we shall suffer persecution. There's no alternative if you would live godly in Christ. But the other unmistakable feature we find in these opening chapters of Acts is that of community. The church in relationship to herself. Chapter 2 opens with these words, and when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Chapter 2, verse 46, and day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Chapter 4, verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. In chapter 5, verse 42, where we just ended last week, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Were there social and political issues in those days? Well, there most certainly were. Did the Jews speak publicly to those issues? Well, just ask the Romans. Yes, they did. You know, there's a, there's a, a mindset in the modern church that we can do what we do now because our culture has changed, our political system has changed, and we have freedoms to speak that they didn't have. Well, they might not have had the freedom, but they spoke anyhow. And the Jewish, the Jewish people were a very vocal socio-political people. 
To become procurator of Judea was frequently considered an imperial punishment because it was considered to be the most difficult of the Roman provinces to govern. Yes, there were social and political issues in those days, and yes, the Jews did speak to those issues, but did the church? No. Well, at least not in the way everyone else was speaking. Do we speak to the social and political issues in our day? No. But at least not in the way that everyone else is doing it. You see, the church is left in the world to have a voice, but it needs to be an evangelical voice. We need to learn a new language. Now, I like the analogy of language because, you know, our, our schools will tell us that they need our children because without them, our children cannot learn. But in fact, our children have learned a great deal before they ever go to a school. They already have learned how to speak. They learned the meaning of words and how to use them before they ever... They learned the most powerful distinctive of human beings among all the creatures of the earth, and that is how to communicate. They've already learned that. The, school don't, the schools don't teach that. In fact, I think what the schools do is ruin it by teaching whatever they teach. But we learn our language at home. And I would say that we learn our evangelical language in the community, the home of the Church of Jesus Christ. We learn to speak with an evangelical voice individually, but also as a church. Now, don't get me wrong. I do not mean parroting Scripture in every conversation you have. I do not mean going out into the world quoting chapter and verse. I frankly don't find that to be incredibly effective. This is deeper than that. It's not just memorizing and quoting scripture. It's thinking biblically. It's, it's a sanctified rationality that addresses the issues of the world's social and political problems from an evangelical perspective. And evangelical means from the perspective of the gospel. So many people think that the church is a bunch of Christians that come together. And if it's a good church, then they go out and do good works for people. They do helps, help ministries, soup kitchens, things like that. Adolf Schlatter writes that the disciples did not accomplish their work as philanthropists. They didn't go out into the world as men lovers. Rather, they spoke in God's name as his messengers who had been commanded to bring the divine grace to the nations. They spoke in God's name. I would say even more clearly, they spoke in Jesus' name. And when they did so, they were immediately told to stop it. What the Sanhedrin told them time and time again is you will not speak in this name. He did not tell them, they did not tell them you will not teach. Because there were rabbis and rabbinic schools popping up all over the place. It will not, they did not say you may not interpret the scriptures and teach the scriptures. They said, you will not teach in this name. So we need to ask ourselves that when we come into the world as individuals and as a church, is what we say in Jesus' name? And would Jesus allow us to say that? There's one of the most powerful 
passages in the prophets is when God challenges the false prophets of Israel and he says, but by what right have you taken my name upon your lips? That, that has to be the healthy fear of every man who takes up the scriptures to teach. That he might hear from the Lord, by what right did you take up my name upon your lips? And yet that's true of every professing believer. Because by saying we are a Christian, we are placing the name of Jesus Christ upon our lips and upon our lives. Would God say to us, by what right? When we go into the public square and we say, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord told me this, are we false prophets or true? Do we even care? Do we understand the magnitude of the responsibility of taking upon one's lips the name of Jesus Christ? So we learn our language at home. At home, as children, we, we don't sit our infants and our toddlers down and teach them English. They just learn it. As the rest of the family lives life, the children learn to speak. And I, I marvel at it. They not only learn the words, they learn the nuances. It, it takes a while before they learn puns. And that's fun for grandparents. You can still get them. They don't get, they get what you're saying. But they'll get that too. They'll, they'll learn, they learn all of the facets of the power of language in communication. How do we do that? How do we gain our evangelical voice together? Well, I think it's two ways. And these are, these are a common element in the book of Acts. Prayer and praise. This is the family living together. We don't sit each one down and say, this is how you pray. Now, I know some churches do, but we don't. And we don't do the same with praise. We learn new songs together. It's a language. It's, it's a language that we share among ourselves in which God is the supreme object of our attention. Prayer and praise. Chapter 1, verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Chapter 2, verse 42 and verse 47. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Praising God. Verse 4, 24 of chapter 4. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. The early disciples, their, their home life, as it were. Remember, we've already read that they gathered daily in the temple and from house to house. Now, I don't know that, that the many thousands that God had added to their number in those early days all gathered daily. I don't think so. But I think that among the believers, they were all gathering every day. Either in the temple or from house to house. They were gathering together. That was their home. That was their family in a radical way. And for many of them, and many in the world today, coming to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior means leaving your family. The family will see to it. You will be cut off. And so one aspect of the church in its horizontal inward is this family relationship where we learn how to speak to one another, how to speak to God. But then we go into the world with a new language. 
a language of prayer and of praise, an evangelical voice. And I would submit to you that the problems that we face in this world will be seen in a different light <coughs> if we listen less to Rush Limbaugh <laughs> and more to one another singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Too much of the modern evangelical church gets its voice from the world. And the church parrots the world. This is a good place to pause, as I mentioned, and the reason being, from a, from a hermeneutical standpoint, when we get to chapter 6, we, we get that famous, the choosing of the seven, and then we are introduced to Stephen, and of course, uh, Stephen's martyrdom, and then we're introduced to Saul. Now, Saul's presence has already been implied in chapter 5, because he was a disciple of Gamaliel. That presence will be explicit when he is standing, witnessing, and um, approving the martyrdom of Stephen. We're transitioning in Luke's style of, of recording history from Peter to Paul. And, and this is a very important. Luke's record of Acts is not a history, but it's really a framework. There were 12 apostles. We really only hear from one of them, Peter. John shows up. James, unfortunately, shows up when he gets killed. But nothing else to say in Luke's record. And the other nine are there. In fact, you know, I, I it actually I never realized this, but until I read a couple of commentators, um, apparently all of the apostles were before the Sanhedrin the second time. We're told explicitly that it was James or it was uh, Peter and John the first time, but here it's the apostles. But only Peter speaks, okay? And then we're going to transition into Paul. And the rest of the apostles are going to fade off into the, into the background completely. Will the message change? From Peter to Paul, will there be a different church? There, there are many liberals who say that Paul developed the modern Christian church. That Paul's gospel was different than the gospel of Jesus. I don't think that's so at all. But what, what Luke is following is the same pattern that Paul announces. And that is the good news of God's redemption was for the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. To the Jews first, Peter, and then to the Gentiles, Paul. So there's going to be a transition here as we get into chapter 6. Luke is very skillfully taking our eyes off of the, the initiation of the church bringing it to the inner life of the church and then the struggles of the church and then the expansion of the church. So we're going to go from Jerusalem, and this is really the overarching rubric, we're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world, which would be, in that day and age, Rome, which, not coincidentally, is where we end. That leaves... The church's relationship to the world. Once we trans transfer from its relationship to Jesus, its relationship to one another, that's the early chapters, then we're going to go out into the world. We have to go out into the world. We live in the world, and we are never justified in removing ourselves from the world, from sealing ourselves in a cloister. That has never been the pattern of God. He put Israel 
in the most traveled crossroads of the entire Middle East, where three or four empires might march their armies in every, any given year, Egyptian, Hittite, Assyrian, Babylonian, all through that little strip of land that God chose to put his people and to say to them, you shall be my witnesses. This is your wisdom in the face of all the nations, meaning the law, Deuteronomy 4. I'm putting you right in the smack in the middle of the people because you will be my witnesses. And so we do have this horizontal, outward relationship with the world. And I think that the consistency that we're going to follow from Peter to Paul is rooted in their conviction that theirs was not a new religion, but rather the fulfillment of the true religion. And this is where dispensationalism has done such utter damage to the doctrine of the church and the life of the church in our day. Christianity is not a new religion. Christianity is the fulfillment of the true religion. It was the fulfillment of Judaism. It was born out of Judaism. It was the natural extension. It was the, the genetic child of Judaism. Jesus Christ the Messiah is not only the son of David, he is the seed of Abraham, but he is also the seed of woman. And so the apostles will constantly refer to the Old Testament scriptures. Chapter 1, verse 24, it is written in the book of Psalms. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 16. For David says of him, chapter 2, verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, chapter 4, verse 25, chapter 5, verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. The God of our fathers. We can't, we can't lose that. We can't lose that. And when the school of Peter and the school of Paul come together, and I call them schools because that would have been the appropriate terminology, when Paul chastises the Corinthians for being I am of Cephas, I am, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, these were the rabbinic schools they might have said, I am of Shammai, I am of Hillel. It was the same mentality. And when the school of Peter and the school of Paul came together in what's known as the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, we read, and with the words of the prophet, this agrees. In other words, all of these men saw themselves not as starting something new, but as continuing in the, in the right and proper path of the old truth. And that everyone who didn't was actually doing something new and false. It's as if the, the cloud and the pillar was moving. And only Israel moved with that cloud and pillar. Now we're not told that any failed to move. That any stayed put. But for all intents and purposes, if any chose to simply stay in their tents that day, when the cloud moved, then they were no longer Israel. They were cut off. And that is, that is as it is with the revelation of God. It is a mistake among modern American evangelicals to say that Jews worship the same God as we do. They do not. Because the, the cloud has moved. The revelation of God has been completed fully and finally in His Son. How can you reject the Son and say that you still worship the same Father? What Father would allow you to do that? 
Now, that doesn't mean we, we are anti-Semites and that we hate Jews any more than we hate Muslims. It's a far cry from saying that they're right in killing them. The one doesn't lead to the other. You know, saying that they're wrong and killing them, that's not the same connection. But to say that they're right when they're wrong is to say that you're wrong when you're right. Mm -hmm. If they worship the same God that we do, then we worship the wrong God. Yeah. If they're right, we're wrong. And that is our position in the world. People who know me know that I, I do love history. And I do love American history. And as I have mentioned to you before, while I do not think the American Revolution can be defended from Scripture, I'm certainly glad that it happened. Even more so since I visited the UK. I am a patriot. I've studied a great deal of the Revolution, the War of 1812, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Korea. Oh, got this backwards, sorry. Korea, Vietnam. You know, but I'm also Sicilian. My grandfather came over, he's an immigrant, so I'm second generation. Many of you can trace your heritage a lot farther back, and yet you have it, you know it. It's part of you. You're American, but you were Scottish once. You're American, but you were German once. Okay? That heritage is part of who we are. We've been talking about that in Sunday school. It's, 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 the, it's the context of our lives as individuals and even as societies. There are little Italy's, little Italy's, little Havana's. Yeah, there are little, there are enclaves of people whose heritage still defines their social dynamic. They're American. And that's the, that's the marvel of America, is that we can, we can hold to our heritage and yet still be fully American. And I would say to you that that needs to continue and not be cut off. That when ethnicities do come to our land, they do assimilate. And within one generation, I found even in teaching, they become American. And yet they're still what their ancestors were too. I don't know, it brings color to our society that others don't have. I'm a Gentile. Can't help it. But I was grafted in the Commonwealth of Israel. And that heritage has become mine. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has become my God. And the gracious law that was given to them has been written on my heart. And the congregation of faith, the kahal of Jesus Christ, is the assembly of the people of God, made up of Jews and Gentiles. Jews who are by birth, Gentiles by adoption. We are Gentiles. That is by God's providence. But He has graciously granted us the heritage I might say, I'm American. God has granted that by providence, but I graciously have the heritage of Sicily. And the food, too. You know, I, I rejoice. I enjoy that. It's part of who I am. And I enjoy, I rejoice in the fact that, that by adoption, the truths, the promises of God to His people Israel are mine. They are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. I don't read the Old Testament because it's an interesting history. I read it because it's my heritage. It's the heritage of the church of Jesus Christ. The revelation of the God who has bought us with precious blood is mine. It's not some new movement. Some weird aberration that God just threw out. 
He took the Gentiles of his election and he grafted them into that one vine that he himself planted and nurtured. That's us. And unless the church holds fast to that heritage, Jewish in history, Gentile in scope, we cannot understand who we are in this world. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would teach us the truth about your church and about our place in it and its place in the world. We ask that you would balance us properly, biblically, in our relationship with our Master Jesus Christ, with one another, and with the world in which you have placed us. For your glory, for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, for the growth and sanctification of your church, and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand for the benediction, the short and simple benediction from Paul's letter to the Galatians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen.